Hello, and welcome to the Screen Podcast Series, a set of conversations about the state of the science on social screening in healthcare settings. This work was conducted by the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network, SIREN, at the University of California, San Francisco, and funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Welcome to the Siren Screen podcast series. I am Benjamin Aceves, Assistant Professor at San Diego State. And today's conversation is one of a series of episodes on the state of the science on social screening in healthcare settings, all stemming from a 2022 report that synthesized existing research on social screening in U.S. healthcare settings. I'm excited to have the opportunity today to talk to Sherelle Van Brinkle, the Director of Health Promotion and Community Advocacy at the People's Community Clinic based in Austin, Texas, and Andrea Niederveld, an Assistant Professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Colorado, about this section of the report specifically addressing implementation research on social screening. During today's discussion, Andrea and Terrell will share their thoughts about the existing research in this area and what they think needs to come next in this rapidly evolving area of social care practice. Welcome, Sherelle and Andrea. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Of course. Happy to be here. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to start off with a question specifically about whether any of the research findings in the implementation section of the report was surprising to you. Or what about validating at all? So I felt like it was mostly validating. So most of the findings that uh, are in the report coincide with things that we've learned here in Colorado, specifically that screening in, is conducted less frequently for non-English speaking patients. We definitely found that in our work. And also that who does the screening matters. So one of the findings was that community health workers had more responses to screening than RNs. I was also really happy to see that providers feel the need for more training and support around this area as this is something we're really interested in here and exploring further. And I also think in implementation of any new program in a healthcare setting, particularly primary care, so important to have that whole clinic buy-in, so including leaders like clinicians. And I think often screening is implemented in ways where clinicians are not included. They either aren't involved in the process or they don't receive the results. But I still think it's so important that everybody in the clinic understands the why. You know, why are we doing screening? Why do we care about social needs and the impacts they have on care and outcomes? And then finally, I was really surprised by how much we still don't know. So it made me, you know, feel good about job security. There's lots of space for more work and discovery and, you know, just hopeful that we can keep uh, moving this train forward as far as research is concerned. Yes, I totally agree. And I think that's super important, right? That there is multiple gaps, but they're at different levels. They're at the patient level, they're at the organizational level among staff and providers. And I think that really hitting the nail on the head. And Terrell, did you have anything to add and, and just really enrich this conversation as well? Yeah, for sure. I think though we look at health inequities a lot and see that there's so many differences by race, I was a bit surprised that with implementation that, you know, different races were being screened at different rates. And I think because And the reason that I personally was surprised by that is because our implementation was based off of like the visit type. And so I just, it just makes me curious um, to see um, and and, and kind of want to dig a little bit more into why that's happening to ensure 
in my head, I thought the way in which we implement it would, you know, completely take, wipe that away. But I just wonder if that is also happening, even with having specific visit types be where you actually screen the patient. And then I also was validated just by the plethora of differences in which people were screening. It was validating to understand that, you know, there isn't necessarily one right way or like we're not the only ones trying to figure this out. That's also super validating to know that you're not the only person kind of like running around figuring, trying to figure out what to do. And so that's really helpful to, to, to me and the work that we do here at the clinic, because we have had so many iterations of implementation. We keep going back to the drawing board and kind of feel like we don't know what we're doing, but the research shows that we're all kind of figuring out what the best way in which to do this. Yes, for sure. Thank you so much. I think you all really did such a good job of talking about the report. And I think in in all of that, you really talked about the gaps that we're really seeing in some of these things. And you all listed a lot. So I'm just wondering, what do you really think needs to prioritize? Like, What is really the most critical to move forward to support the implementation of social screening programs within clinical settings moving forward? You know, I think there was a little bit of research around like those 21 days or weeks post actually implementing it, where it started to die off, you know, die down a little bit of, of the folks who were actually doing it. And so I think there should be, and I think that kind of speaks to what you were saying, Andrea, about, you know, the buy-in and ensuring people understand why. And like, how often does that need to happen? How often are we needing to um, reiterate the importance of this in order for us to not see any dips in actual implementation. So I think it would be really good to understand like what this follow-up to keep people engaged look like. And then also just understanding uh, there was a lot around, you know, trauma-informed training, health equity training in the research, but kind of understanding the impacts that asking these questions has on our clinicians, our medical assistants, and other clinical staff who are now privy to a lot more information about the patient in which they're dealing with and some of it, you know, particular situations that they couldn't even fathom themselves um, and just how that affects our workflow and the way in which we are trying to um, navigate and find resources for these patients. I was just going to sort of build off of that too, because I think related to that, like the impacts is you know, the concern about stigmatization. I think that's a gap. Uh, We know that people feel stigma around poverty and having social needs. I mean, I think that that's clear and has been clear for a while. If you read about patients who receive Medicaid, you know, and how they, they perceive their care when they perceive being treated or judged. And I think that's something that's important with this as well, because we are starting now to you know, talk about details that maybe we didn't talk about with patients before, you know, whether it's the clinician talking to patients or someone else in the practice. And it's, it's so important. I mean, I think for understanding the whole person, but I think there's a lot of places where either patients could perceive stigma, could feel um, shame. I mean, I think our American culture is one where you're supposed to provide for yourself and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, no matter how hard the social situation is. And I think you know, kind of figuring out is the the juice worth the squeeze, you know, and what ha- and what do people experience related to screening? And then there's also just work, I think, to do around what's the perception amongst all the different clinical staff. And, and one thing we've found in our work in Colorado is that a lot of primary care 
clinic staff experience these same social needs and and how does that impact you know how does that impact the way that they interact with patients or we as a as a whole as a healthcare system interact with patients when you know we have people working in that system who are experiencing the same needs so i think that's a big gap like what what are what's the fallout around that such great points and i'm just literally nodding my head in agreement and all these such great points and really tying that together you know you all mentioned like how immigrant communities are really pressing this different and then also the stigma around pulling yourself up from your bootstraps and really that those two tensions there that really tie together i think is so important and you have touched on so many things we could probably go on this discussion forever but just to kind of carry along with some additional questions. I wanted to ask Andrea, I know you've done great, some great work on introducing and framing social risk screening for patients, but that work wasn't all available when we did the research. Um, what gaps do you think your research fills related to this report and beyond? And what types of studies do you think are necessary to address this topic? I'm excited to talk about this. We just had the paper published last week, so that was exciting. But we did a study where we looked at how you frame social needs screening, how you introduce it to patients, um, partly because one thing we noticed in Colorado practices that were participating in the Accountable Health Communities Model Project was that the introduction page from CMS was um, maybe not that patient-friendly and was pretty dense. You know, it was a whole page of writing. And I think we, we all, ourselves, when you get a form to fill out. You usually just go right to the questions. You don't always necessarily read the introduction. So we thought it would be interesting to determine whether how you introduce the screening, you know, what words you use and how you explain why you're doing it makes a difference. So we did a three-phase trial where the first was just business as usual. So it was these practices using the CMS form. The second, we did a um, community-engaged process to develop a different written introduction form um, that we did in English and Spanish that just explained the why of screening, you know, and, and reiterated that the information is confidential. It's, it's really being used to improve care and connect with resources. It's not reported to anyone, you know, because of people's fear about, um, you know, saying that they can't feed their children. I mean, people worry that they'll be reported to CMS or CPS, sorry, or something like that. So, we did that as the second phase with just this verbal in, or written introduction, excuse me. And then the last phase was the same written introduction, but then having the medical assistant also explain to the patient as they handed them the form, basically what it said on the written form. And interestingly, we found that um, the written explanation, so the one that we developed through a community-engaged process didn't really make a difference, but that when the medical assistant explained the process, fewer people responded to it. Like, I think maybe we don't know why. Maybe people self-selected and said, I don't really have any needs, so I'm not going to fill this out. But more people were willing to accept referral to resources. And that's our ultimate goal, right? To connect people with resources. So, you know, it's it was a small study. It's one clue that maybe we need to do more than just hand people a screening form and actually have conversations with them about this. But I think it starts to fill the gap on what's the best way to communicate with patients about this. Obviously, a lot more work to be done. And as far as follow on to that, we we really think that, like I said, it was a small study. So maybe we need to do this in larger contexts or explore other ways to introduce it, you know, other situations to do it in. The beginning of a visit where a patient has a lot of clinical questions they might ask might not be the best time to talk to people about these needs. 
because um, we know we've heard from patients that, you know, they are concerned that focusing on social needs will take away from their time to focus on their medical needs. So I think there's a lot of ways to still think about how do we frame this so that it feels beneficial to patients and, and we also feel like we're actually connecting with them and getting answers to these questions so that we can connect people with resources. And then, um, you know, I mentioned before, but the stigma is important to me. And then I also think looking at how does this information lead us as clinicians to adjust our care? And that's, that's one of the five A's in the structure that we're supposed to use for social needs screening is adjustment of care. But I think that's an important area um, to look at in the future too. Who should get this information um, within the clinic and how should it impact other clinical decisions that we make? Well, first, congratulations on getting that paper published. And I don't know if you want to tell our listeners where it's published just so they can reference it in the future. Sure. Yeah. So this research was funded by Siren and um, all the studies that were funded through that mechanism, all the results were published in a supplement to the American Journal of Preventive Medicine. And I think it was last week's, whatever date was last week. So if you wanted to look and, and read that, as well as a ton of other great studies, that's where it is. Well, congratulations again. And thank you so much for telling us about your very just rich study in such a concise way. I feel like I've just learned so much in hearing you discuss it. And yeah, I, it's very, very great to see that y'all are finding this rich information for people to really process and digest. And I'm sure, Sherelle, you took a lot from that. But I also want to ask you, as someone who is really engaged on the ground, does this day-to-day, works with these things, works with clinical staff, really has to make these decisions. Well, first, I, I would love if you could just recap for our audience the process that People's Community Clinic has gone through in designing their screening programs. What have you learned really from different pilots initiatives you've undertaken? And if anything, I'm sure tons of things, but if what from what Andrea said really resonated with you in going through this process, because I'm sure there was a couple of things. I kind of saw your head moving like, yes, yes. <laughs> Yes, for sure. I'm over here all excited because I love learning from from people who are implementing social needs screening, especially as we've been working on it for the past couple of years. So I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to have to follow up with her afterwards, understand what that script looks like, and then use it. And so we piloted the prepare tool back in 2017. And it's very long. And the part of the project that we were in did not come with like immediate resources. And so it was a lot on our clinical staff, but then there is, it wasn't anything to show for it right in that moment. So they were asking about all of these questions, like I was speaking of earlier that, you know, gave them a different light to see what type of situation the patient was in, but then we didn't have resources readily available to help. Um, And so that created its own level of trauma. Um, And so we sat down and took about nine months creating a social needs screening tool that fit our workflow. Um, And I say that because there are, there were some things that were, you know, social needs issues that were already being addressed, like interpartner violence, uh, our integrated behavioral health team already asks about that in their interactions with patients, like Medicaid or any type of insurance needs. Our financial counselors already ask about that at the initial visit that the patient already has. And so there were some workflows where we were already asking some things and we didn't want to just continue to ask the same questions. And they'd be like, are you even talking to that lady that I spoke with last week? Um, And so we built it based off of that. But then we also looked and ensured that the way we were asking the questions were actually oriented 
and that there were resources available for these particular social needs. Everything doesn't have a resource available. Like in Austin, if someone says they need a house, I'm like, yeah, me too. Um, because we're all dealing with this, you know, inflation period, but especially around housing or even like safety. Um, we ask about safety, but there aren't necessarily simple resources because for some folks, safety is uh, from people in their particular neighborhood um, where, or for some people, like they don't feel safe around police officers. And so we want to ensure that we are diving deeper into some of those conversations and helping when we can. And so when we started that screening tool process, we had a binder that then became like a drop down folder, like a file folder with resources available. And so the, the, the clinical team was actually really engaged with that type of process because the medical assistants who were asking the questions had the ability to say, here are some things that will help in the way that you ask. So they could learn about the patient's particular, like, you know, where they were in life, but then also were able to, to help a little bit. And it gave our providers the ability to go into the patient visit informed. And so like you were saying, Andrea, they were able to change the way in which they were interacting with the patient. Um, you know, you might have a patient that has diabetes and the visit provider might've initially talked about some diet changes and physical activity, but then when learning that patient is in a housing crisis and doesn't have food now, then your conversation shifts quite a bit. Um, and so we actually did three pilots. Um, each pilot, we got feedback from the patients after they finished their process of getting resources. We also worked with community-based organizations, grassroots organizations who were on the ground helping our patients in the community setting on getting these resources to really help us frame the way we're asking the questions, as well as the way we were following up. And so what we learned from that, I, that really resonated with me, what, what Andrew was saying was like, how do we change clinical flow based off of what we know, based off of that knowledge? And I know that our clinicians here were really, really utilizing that because once COVID hit and we took the screening tool out of the clinical flow, we're like, hey, hey, like I need to know these things. And so now that we're, you know, in the process of creating this um, workflow that includes, you know, some tech where we have a QR code and the patients fill it out digitally. The, the our biggest concern from our, our clinical staff is like, how do we see the results? How do I see what my patient is going through so that when I go into the patient room, I can be informed. And so that's really resonated me. I'd love to understand the changes that are actually made in ways in which we might be able to study that for sure. Wow. No. And uh, Andrea, I know you want to jump in, so I'm going to go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, I think there's even a further step. And one thing I'm concerned about as a clinician, like with that adjustment is, is there the potential that we'll stop giving um, as good of medical care because we'll make assumptions about what a patient can or cannot do? I mean, I think there's, there's definitely important things like, oh, I was going to prescribe this medicine that needs to be refrigerated, but now I know that you don't actually have a refrigerator, so I won't do that. I'll do this other just as good medicine. But sometimes I worry that we will sacrifice, you know, quality clinical care because we make assumptions about what someone can or cannot do. And I just wanted to add that because I think, yes, it's really important that clinicians understand that, but then how do we support clinicians to still provide really good care to people? And that just makes, you know, brings it all back to me that this is not just something that can be fixed in primary care. You know, we can't just do this in a, in clinics. It really has to be a big societal and policy response that's made. And, and that's partly why I think this work is so important because we're finding these things that really ultimately, you know, lead to the poor health outcomes we see and the high 
amount that we spend on healthcare for, for not as good of results as other places that maybe have a stronger safety net. Yes, for sure, for sure. And I think to reiterate the piece specifically about clinical staff making assumptions based off of what they know around social needs, you know, I think that's when we get into other larger trainings and implementation that needs to happen around ensuring health equity is at the forefront of the work. And we actually just last week were talking about the difference between cultural competency and cultural humility and the importance of, especially when we get into screening, the need for cultural humility and to understand that our history, my experience as a Black woman, changes the way that I make decisions in my everyday life. And so I have to respect that people make decisions based off of their experiences. And that's something that I will never understand. And that's totally okay. But just really learning to be led by and respectful of our patients who have, you know, might have a completely different life than, than we do, but understand that they know what's best for them and to not make those assumptions and to really just have those conversations and come to the table as two people collaborating on health rather than like this, you know, paternalistic like, I know what to do for you, or I know what's best for you uh, mindset. But I think that's like a larger, you know, those are like some larger health equity things that just healthcare in general, you know, needs to work on. Um, but yeah, I think that that's, that was a really good point. Thank you for bringing that up. And Shira, I, was, I would even expand that to say researchers, us as researchers need to learn how to do that a lot better as well. And there's just so many things you talked about. And I think generally from this conversation, what I'm really taking away is really the need for healthcare research and other entities to really focus on the policy level changes we need to make and really these higher level changes for, for patients to feel comfortable, for folks to feel comfortable with social risk screening. And just the housing, I think, was the biggest takeaway, right, is how we can do so little to change the economic situation with housing and how we really need to align ourselves with that need to change policies at that level. And so it's been great conversing. And I'm sure we could talk about this for hours. So I'm just going to close up with a, one last question. What's your biggest takeaway from the report? And just want you to know where would you like to see new research, focus on in the future, uh, new invest, new studies? What do you all think are are really the, the directions we need to take. I think, you know, the big takeaway for me is just that we really are sort of on the cusp of making some strides, I hope, in this country to recognize how much more we need to integrate things and develop a system that really serves people. And, you know, there's lots of discussion points along the way to get there as far as, you know, what does our system really do now? But I think, you know, just really seeing this as part of a bigger whole. You know, it's not just one more clinical implementation project, but it really is saying, okay, we know this about American health and health outcomes and what do we want to do about it and how can we use what we're finding through what we're doing around social needs screening and referral to sort of poke at those policy issues. And I think uh, as far as a new research focus in the future, you know, like obviously it'd be so great to be able to say social needs screening and referral changes the downstream health impacts. But I think that's gonna be a really difficult thing to do in a study. So I think, you know, looking at some longer term studies so that maybe we can start to move in that direction. And then I really, you know, want to see us move toward that adjustment of care. You know, what does that mean? And what's the way to make sure people are getting the care they need while we address social needs? And then, you know, how can we make this more of a societal issue? Because the one thing that I still, I'm concerned about is that, you know, medicalizing social needs 
makes it into a totally different kind of problem, I think, than it actually is. It's sort of a one-off, like here's Jane, she is unhoused and now she has a house, so that's fixed. That's not really the problem. And I worry that, you know, we will look at it from a, a medical perspective instead of more of a public health or social policy perspective. Oh, yes, yes. I'm over here like, if, if you could like, if everyone could see me, I'm like over here trying to clap and snap. But yeah, I think- Go I, ahead, go ahead, pop, snap away. <laughs> but I definitely think that, you know, um, and I'm starting with the second question first, I guess, you know, some things that I'd like to see focus is, you know, how do clinics not only address social needs, but make that a part of their larger health equity work. And so what Andrea was saying, really focusing on policy change, because yes, we can help individually at an individual level, patients find resources and get them done, but we could also come together collaboratively as a community, as a state, as a country, or as healthcare sector to be able to really push forth policy change that puts our patients in this predicament to begin with. And one of our um, previous manager of our medical legal partnership program, Keegan, always calls them legal determinants of health. And she always emphasizes that because she's a lawyer and looks at law, but also because she's like, policies made the inequities that we see outside of the clinic, which then in turn create inequities that we see inside of the clinic. And so we really wanna go upstream. Policy is so huge. And so I know that that's a piece that Healthcare as a whole hasn't really gotten too much into, especially like social needs policy changes, maybe like Medicaid expansion policy changes are, are things that we have seen healthcare entities be a part of. But when it comes to like housing policies and like different environmental factors that affect health, we're not necessarily always at the front for it. It's usually like these grassroots organizations like advocating for increased funds for a particular thing. Uh, and so just I think it would be nice to understand how clinics can do that. What does that look like for a clinic to be um, civically engaged and pushing for policy change as a part of their larger health equity plan, right? So I think it would be really, really nice to tie that into what that looks like. And then I think my biggest takeaway from the report is that it's really validating to see, like I said before, there's not necessarily one way to do things, but there are ways for us to collaboratively do screening that's different. So I think, you know, I, I think people kind of might look at this research and say, wow, everyone's doing their own thing. We're just going to go into our own thing differently. But I think even though we all, you know, we have different workflows, it, it is so much better for us to be able to bounce these ideas off of each other, even if our workflows don't look ex exactly the same. So I think collaborating and put like all of the information that you're learning from this, this one research is just so helpful, even if, the workflows like Andrea's doesn't look the same as mine, but I definitely am going to reach out to her about this, you know, about the scripts that they're using. So I think, you know, it's it's super, super helpful to be able to collaborate um, as much as we can to push the needle as a sector, I think as, a, as an entire healthcare sector for sure. Well, and just to really shout out the People's Community Clinic in terms of pushing the needle, I know you all are really pushing that forefront out in Texas and Austin and, and just, you know, I know a lot about y'all's clinic and everything. And so I really look to you all <laughs> to see what we can be doing 
in the future. So it's great to know that you want to learn from others, but I'm sure a lot of folks are learning from you as well. Thank you. But thank you all so much for sharing your perspectives. I think it's been really helpful to really see on the ground what's going on that can really help inform the best type of implementation practices moving forward that can really make policy level changes and structural changes. And so really looking forward to hear what comes out from Colorado and from Texas in the future. But just to close out, thank you so much for sharing this space and sharing your knowledge and expertise today with me and with our entire audience of Sirens. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this special summer screen break episode of Siren Coffee and Science, a project of the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at UCSF. Andrew Fankush does our editing and sound design. Susan Shepard designed our cover art and Aurélien Jukla composed our music. Laura Gottlieb and Yuri Cartier, that's me, produced this limited podcast series. Find out more by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care.